to episode 250 of Late Night Linux, recorded on the 9th of October, 2023. I'm Joe, and with me are Graham. Hello. Will. Hello. And Gary. Hello. So Gary, people may know you from Linux After Dark. We've decided that to celebrate 250 episodes, Phelan is fired and you're replacing him. Yeah, I'm just going to come and talk about the cloud and AI and GNOME instead. <laughs> yeah, and how great they all are, yeah? Absolutely, yeah, 100%. Excellent. No, really, he's in Glasgow trying to avoid the natives beating him up for beating them at rugby or something. So he'll be back in a couple of weeks, but you've got Gary until then. So let's do some news then. But before we do, let me just play a clip from Late Night Linux episode 210 from the 3rd of January 2023. Don't expect a Raspberry Pi 5 in 2023, says Eben Upton. This was in a fairly long YouTube interview with Explaining Computers. And he talked about it being a recovery year while they try and get the supply chain issues fixed, which we talked about in our end of year thing, I think. So we're not going to expect a Raspberry Pi 5 this year. Totally unrelated, let's just go back to February of 2019, where Upton oh, said, I don't have a route to do something this year. That was with regards a Raspberry Pi 4. That was February 2019, June 2019, Raspberry Pi 4 now on sale from $35. <laughs> So this means we are definitely going to get a Raspberry Pi 5 in 2023, as far as I'm concerned. So excellent news. So the first news is uh, introducing Raspberry Pi 5. So I was right then. Well done, Joe. I mean, it wasn't exactly uh, clairvoyance, was it, to predict this? Do you remember that guy during the uh, Gulf War conflict where it was like claiming everything was fine and stuff was on fire behind him? It's like the opposite of that. Yeah. So are we excited about this Raspberry Pi 5 then? It's been announced, but it's not available yet, which is relatively unusual. They haven't done this since the first one. I quite like the pre-order idea again, because for ages, stock has been so hard to come by that you sign up for email alerts when stock comes in, you go to the store and it's already sold out and it's incredibly frustrating. So I quite like the idea of announcing a new product, which there will be a lot of excitement for, in the world generally, and then allowing people to pre-order and almost be guaranteed of getting one on release day. I think that's quite a a nice change and deals quite neatly with the general lack of availability. Mm, True. I think my enthusiasm, I don't want to be negative, I think my enthusiasm is tempered a little by the supply issues that have plagued the four um, when I've needed them and the fact that I don't need this power for my typical Raspberry Pi project, I would maybe would have appreciated a cost reduction. That isn't to say I won't be able to use almost double the power, it seems, although that comes with double the cooling requirement. But I'm a little bit not as excited as I I normally would be or as I used to be when there was a big Pi update. Although I can't believe we can buy that kind of computer for that kind of price, you know, for $60 or $80. But yeah, I should be more excited than I'm not. Yeah, I feel very much the same as you, Graham. I usually rush out to buy the latest Raspberry Pi, and I'm just not going to do that this time. Anything that I need to do on a Pi, the Pi 4 still does a reasonably okay job of. And I don't need twice the power, and I don't need the extra power consumption either. I think that's the big thing, that you've got twice the performance, but it also needs like a 25-watt power supply, which just seems like a huge amount of power for the level of performance you get out of a Pi compared to something like a Mac MIDI or another ARM device. And the almost mandatory requirement for active cooling 
is a bit of a turnoff for me. And I, I don't really want this very high-pitched, whiny thing sat away in a cupboard somewhere. I'd much prefer, well, no heatsink, frankly, but and that's just not re- realistic at these kind of clock speeds. But it, it does take the shine off for me. Well, I did see Explaining Computers did a video where he used a passive heatsink and it was basically as performant as the active cooler. But he also says that the active cooler's fan is not really a horrible wine. It's It doesn't spin all the time. It is temperature controlled and spins up and down and isn't offensive, he says. So we'll have to see about mm, that. Mm. But I think the biggest thing really isn't the more powerful CPU and GPU. It's this RP1 chip, which finally sorts out the IO situation and doubles the USB IO. And also as a result of all of this, they've added PCIe, but it's not a proper PCIe slot. It's not an M.2 slot. It's a ribbon cable that has to go to an external board of some description. Yeah, I I read the article linked in the notes and was somewhat disappointed to see this kind of daughter board hanging off the side. What I really want is a Raspberry Pi-sized device, and on the back, I want uh, an NVMe like M2 port that I can put an NVMe drive on, self-contained, don't need a separate external box, don't need a separate external power supply. I just want it on board, and I want it to be fast and reliable and quiet. And I thought when I first read about these, um, I think five lanes or maybe four lanes of PCIe, I think three or four of them go to the RP1 chip and then there's this one spare. I just dreamed for a second that there would be an M2 port on the back of the Pi and I'd be able to just slot a drive in. But it was not to be. And I'm quite disappointed by that. And furthermore, it seems that there are still software issues when booting from NVMe on that PCIe bus which is unfortunate, but I'm sure they'll fix this. I'm sure it's just some software that needs to be repaired. But right now, it doesn't sound like the um, the perfect solution that I was hoping for. A little bit disappointed by that. Well, hold your fingers, keyboard warriors. I'm going to tell Will so you don't have to. There is the Orange Pi 5, which has an M.2 slot on the back of it. It's a bigger device, and also it suffers from the general ARM board problem of not as good software support as the Raspberry Pi, so I would be reluctant to get one. Well, I have used some Orange Pi boards in the past, and Ambien worked very well on those boards, so I would be relatively okay with giving that a go, but I just want a real Raspberry Pi one. I want one that, I don't know, that I can trust, Mm. I suppose. Yeah, it's like the Ubuntu of small devices. You just know that there's somebody out there who will have got something to work that you need to work. Mm. I'm still not a fan of the mini HDMI ports as well. I think I've bent quite a few cables. They're just, I just, they're just horrible, and I can never find them when I need to. Well, I had the ridiculous situation of trying to plug from mini HDMI, or is it micro HDMI oh, to mini, know, whatever, that one of the small ones to one of the other small ones in this next dock that WinPress gave me, and so I had to use a cable, a special cable, and an adapter, and it was just ridiculous. Just full-size HDMI would be good. I'd almost rather it only had one display output and it was Mm. a full-size HDMI because Mm. I think I've used the two micro HDMIs on my Pi 4 once, which was because it was new and it seemed cool to run two displays off of it. Yeah, same. Well, here's a question. DisplayPort can do 
pass through to two monitors. You can plug one DisplayPort cable into a computer of some sort, and that can drive two or maybe three external monitors which are joined together at the monitor level rather than at the device level. Has the time come that we should replace that HDMI, well, we, you know, Raspberry Pi, should replace that HDMI port with a display port, and then you only need one of them? Or a second USB-C port mm. that could do the job. Yeah, just a USB-C that does video out. I'd much rather have that than these stupid micro-HDMIs, frankly. Yeah, yeah, me too. Well, I didn't really want to buy one, but then I thought, well, I've got to, haven't I? <laughs> it's sort of my job to buy these and talk about them. So I pre-ordered one. I went for the 8 gigabyte RAM version because, you know, in for a penny. Yeah. And by the time I'd bought the fan and a case... In for a penny turned out to be in for £110. It's much more than $35, yeah. Yeah, I remember getting the original Pi with 256 gigs of RAM at Camp 2012 in person, and I think I paid 35 quid for it. Mm -hmm. And this feels quite a bit different to me. Oh, yeah, I bought the power supply as well, because I think I've got a charger that would do, but I just thought, no, I'm not going to mess around. I'll just buy the official one, and then any problems, it's not my fault. Yeah, and I used to justify purchases like that by saying to myself, well, I can drop in, replace. I've got like five pies deployed around the house doing things like um, the brew pie fridge and a couple of synth things. And previously, I could just drop in the new pie and I've got a free upgrade and the old pie becomes something else for a new project. And, you know, that worked brilliantly for the 3D printer with the Pi 2 um, the Pi Zero 2W, whatever it was called, because that was a massive upgrade without me having to do anything else. But now I need a reason to buy the Pi 5 that I haven't had for quite some time. So has no one else ordered one then? I can't say I have. No. I, no. I think for me, the big elephant in the room are the gamut of really cheap x86 boxes that are available now. Mm. And if I don't need GPIO, that's probably what I'm going to go for. We've talked in our Linux After Dark group chat a few times about these, and you can get a Dell 5070 thin client on eBay for like 50 quid. That's got a Celeron J-series CPU, and the TDP of those CPUs is somewhere under 10 watts. And it's an x86 box. I can put a proper SSD in it. It's mm. got a proper NIC that's not USB. And for me, if I'm going to spend 60 quid on a box and I don't need GPIO and it's just going to sit in a cupboard somewhere running something, I'd be more tempted by that, I think. Well, I had exactly the same thought, only I thought, right, what can you get laptop-wise for about 110 quid? And then I thought, well, hang on, what about the GPIO? There's got to be a way to do GPIO with a laptop. And sure enough, I think Adafruit does a board. It's about 20 quid delivered, and it gives you effectively the same GPIO as a Raspberry Pi. So I thought, well, 90 quid then is my budget. Now, I've always dreamed of owning an X-Series ThinkPad. And so I thought, right, this is my chance to justify buying one. And so I went on eBay and I bought an X270 for 85 mm. quid. No way. This is a 7th gen i5 with 8 gigs of RAM and a 256 gig NVMe drive in it. And 85 quid. Now, it was a little bit cosmetically worse for wear. But it functioned fine until it didn't, until it started giving me weird crashes with graphical glitches. But then I swapped the RAM out for a stick from one of my other laptops. And so far, so good. We'll see how long that lasts. But it's been absolutely fine. And I cannot help but think that anything you want to do with a Pi, more or less, unless you're talking about some of the real embedded stuff, but your average person who wants to do a bit of 
general hacking or using as a server or even as a desktop, which is now possible with the Pi 5 and less painful than ever. You can do all that with a ThinkPad, can't you? Only this time you've got a keyboard and touchpad and screen built in and a built-in UPS in the form of two batteries in my case. Again, the batteries weren't in great health, but they last three hours combined playing 1080p YouTube on full brightness. So maybe I just got really lucky with my dodgy old ThinkPad on eBay. But Gary is right. The bargains are out there on eBay. And yeah, it's secondhand versus new, but I just can't help but feel that people have kind of moved on from ARM boards because of the Raspberry Pi shortages. And we've sort of realized that mm, maybe x86 isn't quite as dead as we thought it was. I think it's cost as well, though, because when you spend 80 or $100 on a Raspberry Pi 5, and then you need to kind of add expensive things. If you want to experiment with the PCIe Express, for example, you're going to spend more than that. Then you just you may as well buy something that's based x86. Whereas the real cheap stuff that we all started using Raspberry Pis for when they were £25, there's still a need for that, which the Raspberry Pi is no longer fulfilling. Yeah, well, you can still buy the old Pis, can't you? In theory, yeah. but then again, stock has not been very good. I don't know. There's some, there's, I've got a, mind, a mental block on buying an older Pi when there's a newer version out, even yeah. with the increased price. Yeah, because mm. they don't really drop the prices, do they? Mm. Which is a little bit weird. So you're paying what feels like top dollar for really old hardware. Yeah, which is probably fine for some kind of industrial embedded use. But if I'm at home, I'm just going to buy the newest thing. Well, I look forward to trying out this Pi 5. I did a very quick benchmark with Passmark, and the ThinkPad absolutely kicked the Pi 4's ass. But then one of the tests is encryption, which I think is probably hardware accelerated on the Intel chip. So I don't think it's that fair of a benchmark. But even just going to download the software, it was just painful waiting for ages for the browser to start and stuff. So we'll see if a two to three times improvement translates into a usable desktop. But I don't think the Pi was ever really meant to be a desktop, was it? I don't know. Maybe the Raspberry Pi Foundation knows things we don't. Um, and this is something that they feel like they need to go towards because they keep pushing it. Mm. Maybe they do get feedback from a lot of schools or they know that this is an area where they really could expand into. Because it feels like that's what they're targeting with this kind of power, doesn't it? Yeah. But again, if I had a kid or one of my brother's kids came to me and said, I want to learn coding, but I don't want to risk messing up my main laptop, what should I do? I'd buy him a ThinkPad, an old ThinkPad, and stick Linux on it. I wouldn't buy him a Pi anymore, I don't think, whereas once upon a time I probably would have. They've become so used to doing everything through a browser on something anyway that, you know, it'll be a while before they get to real hardware. <laughs> That's true. Okay, this episode is sponsored by Collide. If you work in security or IT and your company has Okta, this message is for you. Have you noticed that for the past few years, the majority of data breaches and hacks you read about have something in common? It's employees. Hackers absolutely love exploiting vulnerable employee devices and credentials, but it doesn't have to be this way. Imagine a world where only secure devices can access your cloud apps. In this world, phished credentials are useless to hackers, and you can manage every OS, even Linux, from a single dashboard. Best of all, you can get employees to fix their own device security issues without creating more work for IT. The good news is, you don't have to imagine this world. You can just start using Collide. Collide is a device trust solution for companies with Okta, 
and it ensures that if a device isn't trusted and secure, it can't log into your cloud apps. So support the show and visit collide.com slash late night Linux to watch a demo and see how it works. That's K-O-L-I-D-E dot com slash late night Linux. On to a bit of admin then. First of all, just a quick thank you to everyone who supports us with PayPal and Patreon. We really do appreciate that. If you want to join those people, you can go to latenightlinux.com slash support. And remember that for various amounts on Patreon, you can get an advert-free RSS feed of either just this show or all the shows in the Late Night Linux family. And we've now got a couple of new tiers, $20 and $30, the star supporters and superstar supporters, because I don't think there was a way to give us more than $10 a month. So if you want to do that, then that would be much appreciated. But uh, $10 gets you all the shows ad-free. And if you want to get in contact with us, you can email show at latenightlinux.com. Michael at Phronix posted an article today about some GNOME merge requests that have been opened that would drop Xorg session support. It's not confirmed, but it's looking like GNOME are going to move in this direction. Now, a couple of weeks ago, we talked about Fedora dropping X support in favor of just a pure Wayland desktop experience. But now GNOME doing it. At the time, we were positive about it and we said, yeah, go for it, Fedora. But GNOME, as the upstream doing it, it feels a bit premature. I don't know. <laughs> premature. Well, yeah, that's the funny thing. How can it be premature after all these years? But there's still so many edge cases. Don't we need a Fedora to do it first and, and get those edge cases fixed before it's just unleashed on everyone? The answer should be yes. We should be doing it on Fedora, but maybe this is what it takes. Yeah, I tend to think of this as a forcing function, which will end up benefiting people in the long run. I think it's likely to be a bit of short-term pain. And there's a lot of wailing and gnashing of teeth. I don't think it's quite as drastic as uh, made out to be. I think that you can have these additional functionality for Xorg in a separate package, and so you will be able to kind of get it to work. But the argument I saw in some of the comments was that the, the GNOME team as a whole are not focusing on Xorg support anymore. They are all focusing, rightly so, on making Wayland better. And so who's left to keep an eye on, on Xorg? It is their preferred display technology. I think probably they're right to focus their energy on it, and it will benefit people in the long run. I think there'll be short-term pain, but if you don't like, if you want to use Xorg, then don't use GNOME. Use one of the other ones. Yeah, I think for me this probably should happen. We've been saying that Wayland is coming and Wayland is coming for what feels like over a decade at this point, although it's probably not. And there does come a point, I think, where you do have to rip off the plaster and you do have to just say, right, enough is enough you know, from GNOME version X, I don't know, 50 or whatever it might be. We're not going to support this anymore. And then you get developers putting a lot more effort into either porting apps to Wayland or getting X Wayland working for those few edge cases where it doesn't work. Because if not, we're just going to be in this state of flux for maybe another decade. Who knows? Yeah, I think reluctantly, I agree. And I'm just glad that it's GNOME and not something like XFC. And I hope that XFC won't be too badly affected by it. Because you do have to consider the... Uh, is it downstreams, I don't know, of GNOME, the likes of Pantheon, you know, stuff that uses GTK technology, is that going to be affected? That's the question that I've seen asked. Well, if it works now, in the current version they're using, it will continue to work. If you want to be on the bleeding edge of toolkits, then maybe you're going to have to update. But 
it's pretty much feature complete at the moment. So just continue to use that version. Mm. And I think personally, I wouldn't want to move back to Xorg now. I've found very few things for me in day-to-day usage that don't work under Wayland on GNOME. And there's a lot of really nice things that I get that I never had under Xorg, like touchpad gestures and videos playing without tearing and all that stuff. It does feel streets ahead, and I do really notice it when I go back to X11. Yeah, but then you can't do things like my little two-fingers script, which swaps the three-finger and two-finger click on my touchpad so that I can have two fingers for middle click and three fingers for right click, because the only way I know how to do that is messing with Xorg. I'm sure there's a way to do it in Wayland, but I just Mm. don't know how to do it yet. I suppose the point here is you have to learn these things now. Things are moving on. Yeah, you're just part of the problem, I think, Jeff. Yeah. You just need to relearn these things. You need to work out how to do these things under Wayland, and I think you'll be fine. And if they don't exist, then file a bug report. I mean, it's not ever going to be 100%. All right, a quick mention for Incus 0.1 has been released. This is the fork of LexD that we talked about a while ago. And what's interesting about this is that they've pulled out a lot of the canonical stuff. We knew they were going to pull out the snap stuff, but it's actually a little bit more than that. And they've taken the opportunity to slim it down and make some difficult technical decisions now and break stuff for this first release so that they won't have to do it in the future. So we'll have to see how this works out, but good luck to them. And from what I've seen so far, it's been pretty well received by users. Gmail unleashes email emoji reactions onto an unsuspecting world, writes Ron Amadeo at Ars Technica. This is just such a bad (laughs) idea. A proprietary Gmail feature where you can react to emails. We all probably are used to reacting to messages in things like Slack and even Telegram these days. But email was not designed for this. And it's so clunky the way they've done it. It sends a separate email with your emoji reaction. What are they thinking? All I can think of is when I send a text message to someone with an iOS device and they react to it, and I just get a text message back that says, Paul has thumbsed up this message or something. <laughs> yeah. I don't want that. Go away. It's a text message. I thought you used an iPhone these days. I did until my wife's iPhone broke and fuck paying a thousand pounds for a replacement <laughs> phone to her, frankly. So uh, <laughs> yeah. yeah, she has got handed down my iPhone 13 and I've ordered a Pixel 8. Oh. So I'll let you know how that goes with all of the AI bollocks. <laughs> so <laughs> so you didn't spend the money on an iPhone, but... Well, all right. It's uh, maybe a little bit of an excuse to get a new toy, but <laughs> we'll see. Well, interestingly, Google has said that with the Pixel 8, they are going to guarantee seven years of updates, which on the face of it is unprecedented. It's even better than Apple, who don't actually make any promises, but if you look historically, they have done about six years. And Google is saying like full OS updates and feature updates. So it seems on the surface like an amazing thing. But then we've got an article from The Verge which kind of tears it apart and says, nah, well, when you really think about it, they're already paywalling features to the pro line of phones. So it doesn't really mean much to say that you're going to get seven years of updates. But I think that's a bit cynical. And ultimately, getting seven years of security updates is a massive improvement over any other Android vendor. If it happens. I mean, we're talking about Google, right? (laughs) Mm. They've already killed 
so many things that I really, really struggle to believe that I'm going to get seven years out of that phone. And even if they did keep it up for software, the hardware is going to be next to useless in seven years' time. Is it, though? Or are we not at a stage now where the improvements are so incremental in terms of hardware that you're going to be able to use a seven-year-old phone by that point and it won't make much difference? Yeah, maybe you're right. I mean, it wasn't that long ago that my work-issued phone was still an iPhone 7, and that didn't feel terribly, terribly slow about a year ago. So maybe it'll get to that point. I just really struggle to trust that Google are going to support a phone for seven years. There's very little that they support for more than a couple of years. Thinking about the kind of feature roadmap of phones out seven years out, it's difficult to imagine what new features they can add beyond a higher pixel count in the camera, except for a whole bunch of AI shit. Failing. I got a fax from him earlier today. <laughs> in order to power all of that AI shit, they're going to need like a whole bunch of, I don't know, like almost graphics card power kind of uh, chips in these things. And so I could just imagine that the the Android of seven years' time just simply won't function on a phone from today because it hasn't got all of that required hardware. Maybe they separate it out. I don't know. But I I think I'm agreeing with you, Gary, and saying I don't think a an Android of seven years in the future is really going to be relevant to hardware from today. The only way I could see it working is if the amount of stuff that it does on device reduces over time. So right now there's a big, you know, it does this thing on device with the Tensor chip or whatever. And maybe the older your phone gets, the more of that stuff happens in the cloud. But then they've got a really long tail of spending more and more on cloud the more people have older phones. So maybe that wouldn't work. I don't know. And I have to believe that Google are fundamentally interested in having that stuff happen in the cloud where they can monitor it and scrape all your, all your metadata from it so that they can sell you more ads rather than have it happen privately on your phone. I can't believe that they would be like in favor of that. Well, except that there's a bit of a backlash to that and people are wanting to do more stuff on device and Apple are really shouting about their AI stuff on device. They don't even call it AI, do they? They are just more subtle about it. And maybe Google thinks that the consumer of today and tomorrow is a bit wiser to these things. Well, we'll see. I can't believe you're going to have a better phone than me, again. <laughs> well, we'll see how long it lasts. Maybe in seven years' time, you'll have a much better phone than me because yours won't have lasted that long. <laughs> <laughs> maybe. And at least I'll have a Raspberry Pi 5, which you won't. All right, stop the clocks. Take a photo. It's a rare case of us praising Mozilla, I think. Encrypted client hello. And this in conjunction with DNS over HTTPS, though, plugs the kind of last gap in browsing privacy because your ISP or people snooping on you can see that you're going to muckyjpegs.com. They can't see that you're going to muckyjpegs.com slash whatever it is that you're looking for. But once this ECH thing becomes a standard, and once web servers all implement it, then we could have a situation where nobody can even see the websites you're going to. I don't think it will solve all of the problems, but I think it will make it more difficult for dodgy ISPs who have a whole bunch of traffic shaping and nefarious backroom deals to sell 
browsing history to advertisers and stuff like that. I think it will make their lives a little bit more difficult. And anything which makes that kind of thing more difficult um, is good. I do remember, though, years ago, maybe maybe three years ago, Firefox enabled DOH by default, I think, and the UK Internet Service Provider Association declared Mozilla a villain of the year because they would had made their life mm. more difficult. So it'll be interesting to see what they have to say about this. Yeah, I can't really say anything bad about it, though. This seems to be exactly the sort of thing Mozilla ought to be doing, just <laughs> helping chip away bit by bit at these privacy things and just being a reasonable internet citizen for anyone apart from ISPs. <laughs> yeah, so well done, Mozilla. More of this kind of thing, please. Right, well, we'd better get out of here then. Thank you very much for joining us, Gary. It's been great having you. More than welcome. And we will probably see you next week as well. But until then, I've been Joe. I've been Graham. I've been Will. And I've been Gary. See you later. <laughs>